0: The History Channel original podcast. and here is the, president of the United States. And the crowd is absolutely going wild. This is a friendly crowd in downtown Dallas and the president and the first lady
1: Jackie Kennedy is in Dallas. She's riding through downtown in an open top limo with her husband Jack. It's loud and it's hot, and Jackie sees a tunnel up ahead where she might get some shade. She doesn't know it yet, but that was a gunshot. It missed its target, but the second one won't. And the three and a half seconds between those two bullets will play over and over again in her mind for the rest of her life. Those few seconds will change Jackie Kennedy forever, and the 24 hours that follow will change the course of American history. I'm Steve Gillen. I'm an historian and the author of the Kennedy assassination 24 hours after. So I've spent a lot of time going over the details of November 22, 1963. John F. Kennedy's assassination is one of those events that interrupts the flow of American history. It's a moment that creates a before and an after in our national timeline. In this podcast, we'll look closely at the after, specifically the 24 hours after, how decisions made in a moment impact us forever. This season, we'll explore the Kennedy assassination through the perspectives of those who lived it. How did Jackie survive this crippling loss? How did LBJ walk a political tightrope right into the Oval Office? Why did Lee Harvey Oswald pull the trigger? And how did all their decisions that day shape history? We'll
0: talk to the people who were there. And he said, that's gunfire. That is gunfire. I've been to Korea. I know what gunfire sounds like.
2: And I pleaded with her. I said, please, Mrs. Kennedy, let us help the president.
1: And we'll talk to the people who have studied that day minute by minute
3: with her white gloves, she grabs onto his left forearm. And with that, the fatal shot hits the president.
1: This episode is about Jacqueline Lee Bouvier Kennedy. The first lady has a glamorous public image. But inside, she's already carrying secret grief and navigating a complicated marriage before she bears witness to her husband's murder. How will she respond in those first moments after his death? How will others seek to exploit her grief for their own political gain? And can she summon the strength to reassure a wounded nation and heal her broken family? This is 24 Hours After, The JFK Assassination, Episode 1, The First Lady. Dilly Plaza is as old as Dallas itself. In fact, it's called the birthplace of Dallas because the very first house in the city was built there. The plaza is a triangle of wide manicured lawns intersected by three roads, Commerce, Main, and Elm Streets. On November 22nd, 1963, at 1229
3: p.m. The limousine, this big presidential limousine turns left onto Elm Street.
1: That's Barbara Perry, director of presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center and author of Jacqueline Kennedy, First Lady of the New Frontier.
3: Mrs. Kennedy is squinting because the sun is so bright and she would have preferred to have her sunglasses on, but when she would put them on, the president would say, take the sunglasses off, Jackie, so people can see you. And that was the whole point of her being there was that people wanted to see her as much, if not more than the president.
1: The presidential motorcade is massive, 22 cars, three buses, and over a dozen Dallas police motorcycles. It extends more than half a mile. The Kennedys limousine sits five cars back. It's a specially designed, 21-foot-long, midnight blue Lincoln Continental convertible. It's got three rows of seats to accommodate the six-person presidential party. Secret Service agent Bill Greer is behind the wheel. Lead agent Roy Kellerman sits to his right in the passenger seat. In the second row, Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, Nellie. And behind them, the presidential couple. Jack Kennedy is seated directly behind the governor, with Jackie to his left. It's a testament to the glamour of the Kennedys that even in this conservative city, people have turned out in droves. As he looks out on the cheering crowds, President Kennedy's sights are set on the future, And specifically, his impending run for re-election. The First Lady, on the other hand, is consumed with the recent past.
2: In August of uh, 63, uh, she gave birth to a little boy. uh, And uh, he only lived two days. And then she became very depressed.
1: Patrick Bouvier Kennedy was born August 7th, 1963. He was premature and suffered from a respiratory disease.
3: His heart is just too weak to try to deal with the lungs and the diminished capacity. He can't get enough oxygen.
1: He lives for only 36 hours. This experience is almost too much for Jackie to bear. Patrick is the third child she has lost. Her first pregnancy in 1955 ended in a miscarriage. In 1956, just a month before her due date, Jackie gave birth to a stillborn baby girl to be named Arabella. And these experiences were made much harder by the fact that she was sometimes going through them alone. While Jackie was losing Arabella, her husband was on a yacht in the Mediterranean with a group that's been described by the press as, quote, friends of both sexes. Only reluctantly did he come home to console her.
3: I think she may have thought she could change him or maybe she thought he wouldn't be as much of a womanizer as he was prior to their marriage. She just must have decided that she had made her peace, uh, that Joe Kennedy supposedly offered her money to stay with her husband, Uh, and if he didn't, did some kind of deal that she decided to stay on.
1: When Jackie went into labor with Patrick, she was vacationing with her children in Massachusetts.
3: The president gets the word. He's back in Washington and he feels guilty. He says, I'm never there when she needs me because he had not been there for some of the difficult births, including the loss of other babies.
1: Jack flies home to be with his newborn son. He's the one with Patrick when he passes away at Boston Children's Hospital. He then travels to Otis Air Force Base where Jackie is recovering from surgery.
3: They took the president, of course, to her room and then shut the door and they were left alone.
1: The loss is devastating for Jack and Jackie. And at first, it drives a wedge between them. When they emerge from the hospital, they go their separate ways.
2: Well, her sister Lee was a very close friend of Aristotle Onassis. And she indicated that he had put his big yacht at her disposal if she wanted it. She could get away from the press, from everybody, for as long as she wanted
1: It's a low point in their marriage. Jackie leaves to go sailing on Aristotle Onassis's yacht while Jack goes back to work in Washington. But this trip also seems to be the thing that brings her back to herself, back to her husband, and ultimately to Dallas.
3: She begins to feel guilty on that trip, that perhaps she shouldn't have left her husband. After all, he was grieving as well. And so when she comes back... And he says to her at a dinner with some friends, I'm going to Texas in November. Will you come with me? She says yes. And so people were stunned because they knew grassroots politicking was not her bag.
1: I know I'll hate every minute of it, she confesses in a letter to a friend. But she'll go to support her husband. She writes, it's a tiny sacrifice on my part for something that he feels is very important to him. The Dallas trip becomes a chance for Jack and Jackie to start over, to put the tragedies and the indiscretions of the past behind them. Jack starts weaning himself off the pain medication he's been taking for an old back injury, and he stops fooling around with other women.
3: And so I want to believe, and I hope it is true, that that they were becoming closer. That somehow gives me comfort, even though it makes me ache for them and ache for her, that were indeed they becoming closer and had reached this inflection point in their marriage that would have been better going forward, and then it was all taken away in such horror.
1: p.m. Jackie and Jack ride side by side in the presidential limo. As they make their way down Elm Street, crowds are cheering, craning to see the presidential couple. Mrs. Connolly, the governor's wife, turns to the Kennedys and says, you certainly can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Then... Some people don't pick up on the first shot, but the second rings out loud and clear. Jackie isn't quite sure what she heard. Maybe it's a motorcycle backfiring?
3: So she turns from looking out over Dealey Plaza towards her husband, she turns to the right, and she sees that his arms have flung upward towards his throat with the elbows out.
1: In a fraction of a second, she realizes that something is very wrong, as does her Secret Service agent, Clint Hill.
2: The first time I realized it was a gunshot was when I saw the president's reaction. He grabbed at his throat like this, and then he fell to his left. And I knew then that it had to have been a gunshot. So that's when I jumped from the position I was in on the car onto the street and started to run toward the presidential vehicle.
1: He's no more than 15 feet from the president, but in the time it takes him to leap from his car and cross the distance to the limo,
2: The third shot rang out. It hit the president in the head. It was just like an explosion hit his head.
1: There are three shots in total, all fired over the course of just eight and a half seconds. The first misses. The second strikes President Kennedy in the back, exits the front of his throat, and hits Governor Connolly. My God, Connolly cries. They're going to kill us all. The third is the killing shot. It strikes the president in the back of the head
3: which causes a spray of blood and skull fragments and brain matter to pepper the car. Mrs.
1: Kennedy, in shock, launches herself out of her seat, up onto the trunk of the car. She's grabbing pieces of her husband's brain. Instinctively, she's just trying to do something to save his life.
2: But I got up there and I got to hold of her and put her in the back seat.
1: You're probably too modest to accept this, but you very likely saved Mrs. Kennedy's life.
2: Well, if she would have fallen off, she would have not have survived, I'm sure. They were running three to five feet and separating the cars at high speeds. So they can't make an error if they do, it's fatal.
1: Meanwhile, others around Dealey Plaza are starting to realize that something is wrong. A few cars back, Sid Davis, a White House poll reporter, is riding in the press bus and he can see the chaos unfolding out his window.
0: We saw the crowd spreading out and running. Women had taken off their heels and ran barefoot because they couldn't run fast enough wearing heels. And I saw this one father lying on top of his son trying to shield him.
1: In the presidential limo, Clint Hill is doing the same. He's lying over Jackie, shielding her body with his own while she cradles the president.
2: And she said, Jack, Jack, I love you, Jack.
1: Did you say anything to her?
2: I didn't say one word, no.
1: The limo picks up speed, racing toward the nearest emergency room. The car passes the Dallas trademark, where Kennedy was scheduled to speak and where crowds and news crews are gathered. A reporter at the time captures an image of the sign outside. It reads, Welcome President and Mrs. Kennedy. In that snapshot, you can glimpse the day that was supposed to happen.
2: On Stimmons Freeway, past the trademark to the right, where the president was to have spoken, where he was to Have criticized the fanatical right.
1: This trip was more than a chance for Jack and Jackie to heal their marriage. It was the reunification of a potent political team. Jackie didn't often campaign with her husband, but when she did, she stalled the show.
3: The reason he looked so happy to have her there was he knew what a political asset she was. He may not have known that going into the White House, but boy, once they got, especially on foreign soil, he saw how popular she was.
1: Jackie is cultured, vibrant, and young, just 34 years old. Early in their relationship, Jack worried that her sophisticated style and expensive taste would be a liability, that she would be unrecognizable to the everyday American. Instead, she became a political and diplomatic asset for the president. She added to the luster of the Kennedy White House. And within a few months of the inauguration, Jackie had become a cultural icon. But despite her popularity, the First Lady was a very private person, She never enjoyed the routine of politics and often declined to attend luncheons with congressional wives and politicians. Dallas would be Jackie's first political trip since the 1960 campaign. But Dallas is not a friendly town for Jack. Just days before their arrival, flyers show up on car windshields and tucked into newspaper racks, accusing him of being anti-Christian and soft on communism. The president's face appears on them like a mugshot. Below his picture, in bold text, won it for treason. And Jackie has heard stories about what happens to Democrats in Dallas.
3: Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird back in 1960 when they were campaigning in Dallas and they were Texan through and through, but they were set upon by a group of right-wingers, including some seemingly genteel ladies who were taking their hat pins and trying to stick Lady Bird with them. And Mrs. Kennedy had had a conversation with Clint Hill about whether it was safe for her to go to Dallas, safe for the president to go, because she kept hearing these things.
1: Ultimately, despite the security concerns, it's decided. They'll brave Dallas. And so despite her unease, despite the fact that she hates campaigning, despite their very fresh personal loss, Jackie is there, right next to her husband, in the back of the limo when it enters Dilly Plaza. It's 12.35 p.m., less than five minutes after the shooting. The limousine carrying Jack and Jackie arrives at the emergency entrance of Parkland Hospital.
2: I assumed that he was dead, but we needed to get to the doctor just in case. We got to the hospital as quickly as we could, but when we got there, there was nobody out there, no assistant, no gurneys, nothing.
1: Someone races inside to get help. By this point... Jackie is inconsolable.
3: When they shut down the motor, what they can hear is Mrs. Kennedy weeping and sobbing and whimpering over her husband.
1: An agent opens the car door. Let us get to the president, he pleads with Mrs. Kennedy. No, she says. A Kennedy aide named Dave Powers runs over from the follow-up car. He sees the president lying in Jackie's arms with his eyes wide open. For a second. Powers thinks Jack has survived. Oh, my God, Mr. President, what did they do, he says. When the hospital staff finally emerges, they first put Governor Connolly on a stretcher. He's sitting directly in front of Jack, which is preventing the agents from getting to the president.
2: Well, Mrs. Kennedy had a hold of his body, and she wouldn't let go. And I pleaded with her. I said, please, Mrs. Kennedy, let us help the president. I got no response at all said it again. Then I realized that she didn't probably want anyone to see the condition he was in because it was really horrible. So I took off my suit coat and I covered up his head, his upper back. And as soon as I did that, she let go and we put him on the gurney.
3: It seems that Mrs. Kennedy was thinking in some ways very clearly at that point in the sense that she always was concerned for her privacy, her husband's privacy, and her children's privacy. And so, here in this most intimate moment, to think of the intimacy of this gaping wound in her husband's head and not wanting there to be photos of that, she just continued to lean over his head wound and hold on to him.
1: The agents rushed Kennedy into the hospital, following an endless arrow marked on the floor, turning left and right. Heading toward Trauma Room 1. Jackie is right with him. A hospital administrator notices that the lower part of her dress and her right leg looks as if they had been painted red. Jackie refuses to leave her husband's side, even after understanding he is most likely dead. But she still holds on to some hope that the doctors could revive him.
3: It had happened before. Mrs. Kennedy is flashing back to the many times her husband suffered illnesses and particularly his very severe back surgeries where she felt that she had been separated from him including times when he almost succumbed to infections and died. She felt in the early part of their marriage she had been separated from him by doctors and she had sworn after that she would never be separated from him again.
1: These moments also echo her experience in a hospital just three months before.
3: When baby Patrick succumbed to his illness, Mrs. Kennedy reportedly had said to the president at that time, I think I can bear this. The one thing I know I couldn't bear is losing you. And so now the absolute worst has happened a mere three months after they lost their baby.
1: Doctors make every attempt to save the president's life. According to later accounts, if it had been any other patient, he would have been deemed dead on arrival. Doctors describe his complexion as blue-white ashen. He has no pulse. Jackie enters the room.
3: However she's asked to leave because it's just not big enough to accommodate everyone. So she was very upset to be told that she needed to leave the emergency room. She did ultimately do so. A chair was found for her and then she sat staring uh, covered in her husband's blood and brain matter in the hallway just outside of the emergency room bay.
2: She made no requests that I recall and didn't say anything. She was uh, tearful. Uh, It was uh, difficult.
3: I think people didn't know what to say to her, didn't know what to do for her or to her. Uh, I think someone did ask if she wanted a sedative. Uh, She did not choose to take a sedative. Jackie
1: is sitting, standing, pacing, peeking into the trauma room, trying to see something of what's happening to her husband. At one point, Lady Bird Johnson, the vice president's wife, approaches her. I don't think I ever saw anyone so much alone in my life," Lady Bird later reflects. At 12:55, 20 minutes after the president arrived, the doctors decide they have done enough.
2: There is really nothing they could do. They tried everything. There was no hope.
1: Dr. Charles Baxter, the emergency room chief, is the one to deliver the news to Jackie. Without hesitation, she asks for last rites to be performed, a sacred part of the Kennedy's Catholic faith. Priests are summoned to the operating room, and Jackie joins them.
3: The president's personal physician noticed at that point she actually went down on her knees to pray.
1: When Jackie enters the trauma room, there's a sheet over her husband. His foot is sticking out. His skin is whiter than the sheet. I took his foot and kissed it, she recalls later. Then I pulled back the sheet. His mouth was so beautiful. His eyes were open. She holds his hand while Father Huber performs the ritual. Jack has had so many medical scares in his life that this is the fifth time he has been administered last rites, from his scarlet fever at the age of two to his back surgery in 1954. Last rites are supposed to be
3: administered while the person is still alive. This becomes a
1: point of concern for Jackie.
3: Mrs. Kennedy asked the priest, do you think that the president's soul was still with the body? And they assured her that it was.
1: It's decided that the official time of death will be 1 p.m., after the last rites were administered. Jackie makes a final effort to comfort her husband and say her goodbyes. She asks a policeman to help her remove her gloves. They have become so caked with blood that they are stuck to her hands. Once they're off, she removes her wedding ring and puts it on her husband's finger. When the priests leave Kennedy's room, they encounter reporter Sid Davis. He asks for an update on the president's condition.
0: I went over, and just as I got to the priests, one of them, Father Oscar Huber was his name said, he's dead all right. I just gave him the last rites.
1: Davis calls his boss at Westinghouse Broadcasting.
0: I said this, this is what the priest said. What do you want to do? And he said, what do you want to do? And I thought for a minute, and I said, "Uh, I don't think we should use it. It's not official. I'm sure the priest may be 100% right, but if we're wrong, we'll never live it down. And so we didn't put it on the air.
1: Now that last rites have been performed, Jackie wants to get out of Dallas as fast as possible. It's Clint Hill's job to make that happen. One of Kennedy's advisors, Ken O'Donnell, asks him.
2: Can you arrange to get us a casket to transport the president's body back to Washington?
1: Jackie is there when the casket arrives at the hospital. The doctors try to shield her from the process, but she retorts... How can I see anything worse than I've seen? By 1:40, the president's body is ready for transport back to Washington. As the Secret Service prepares to move the casket, an official from the medical examiner's office enters the scene. The coroner came
2: in and said, uh, "What's going on? What are you guys doing?" And Roy Kellerman, who was my supervisor, explained to him that uh, they were preparing the body to be to place the casket to go back to Washington. For an autopsy, and the coroner said just simply, Oh, you can't do that.
1: The coroner was right. Texas state law required that an autopsy had to be performed in Texas before the body could be moved.
2: They said to him, Well, how long do you think that'll take? and he said, Uh, one hour, three hours, maybe a whole day. I don't know. And they said to him, That's not acceptable. We're going back to Washington.
3: And so there is this set to, as we would say here in Virginia, there is this very heated, almost physical uh, argument and fisticuffs among the Secret Service, the president's staff and dear friends, Mrs. Kennedy and the Dallas authorities, where ultimately the Secret Service just puts their collective feet down and says, we are taking the president's body.
1: The Secret Service barrels past the Dallas County officials, forcing their way past the policeman guarding the door and rushing the president's body to an ambulance waiting outside. Jackie walks along the left side of the coffin with her hand resting on the casket near the head. A reporter who watched the scene wrote that his most vivid recollection of that moment is of the dazed look on Jackie Kennedy's face.
2: So then I said to Mrs. Kennedy, well, we can ride in this car right back here. And she said, no, I'm going to ride with the president. So I said, well, okay, fine.
1: What did she do during that ride back? Did she say or anything?
2: She just wept. She cried. She was extremely, you know, I don't, there was any, nothing you could say to her to make her feel better But the way things have had happened. It was just nothing you could do.
3: I think Mr. Hill, having just gone through this himself, was just doing everything to hold body and soul together and probably almost fearing the possibility of even trying to speak. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: The motorcade carrying Jackie Kennedy and her husband's body arrives at Love Field, where just that morning they had disembarked to a warm and welcoming crowd.
3: The pictures are just dreadful to see Mrs. Kennedy standing at the foot of the steps, which she had just come down two hours before with her very much alive husband.
1: The Kennedy people are improvising. The casket is too wide for the doorway on Air Force One. Secret Service agents end up tearing the handles off of Kennedy's casket. At the same time, they're removing seats from the back of the plane to make room for the president's body. Air Force One isn't built to transport a casket. When the Kennedy team boards the plane, they find a sweltering hive of activity. The plane has been in the Dallas sun all day, and the engines and air conditioning are off, so it's well over 100 degrees on board. The Kennedy camp is expecting to be the only ones there. The flight home will be a private time to reflect, not just for Jackie, but for the staff as well.
0: These are all young people. They volunteered to work for this young guy running. It really looked like Kennedy's staff. They look like Kennedy's, all of them.
1: Many have been there since Kennedy's first congressional run in 1946 and are considered part of the family. Now the leader of that family is gone. And then they see Lyndon Johnson, which only deepens their sense of loss.
2: At first, we weren't even aware that he was on board, Uh, but he and Mrs. Johnson
1: were. Johnson had arrived in Dallas on a separate plane, Air Force Two. Kennedy advisor Kenneth O'Donnell had told Johnson at Parkland Hospital to take his own plane home. But clearly, Johnson didn't listen. Jackie isn't taking any of this in. But the aides all around her are seething about Johnson's presence. The Kennedy people see themselves as sophisticated and well-mannered. Johnson is crude in their minds. He scratches his private parts, belches loudly at meals, picks his nose in public. Jackie once cringed when she heard LBJ describe the U.N. ambassador as someone who, quote, squats to piss. Many Kennedy aides refuse to call him by his title, Vice President. They simply refer to him as Lyndon. Johnson has thoughtlessly occupied the presidential bedroom, which inadvertently gives Jackie a stab of pain when she boards Air Force One. The blue carpeted bedroom contains two twin beds, a desk, and a chair. There's a small closet for clothes and a bathroom. Pictures of the president and his family hang on the walls. The staff refers to the bedroom as Mrs. Kennedy's room, because she enjoys the privacy that it provides. Johnson quickly realizes his gaffe. He apologizes to Jackie as he hurries from the room. Jackie is alone for the first time since the assassination. She has an opportunity to reflect on what the day had done to her. The promising morning, the gunshots, the hospital and her desperate efforts to stay with her husband throughout the entire ordeal. But she's not alone for long. Lyndon Johnson returns with his wife Lady Bird to formally offer their condolences. The conversation is awkward and disjointed, but Jackie puts them at ease. Oh, she says, what if I hadn't been there? I was so glad that I was there. She takes comfort in knowing she was with her husband in his final moments. Ladybird asked if she would like to change out of her blood-soaked clothes.
3: And she kept saying, no, I want them to see what they did to Jack.
1: In her time alone in the cabin,
3: Jackie does
1: decide to use a tissue to wipe off some of her husband's blood and hair, which was stuck to her face. Did she regret removing the blood from her face and her hair?
3: She did, because she thought that would have meant an even starker image, and of course she would have been right.
1: Jackie goes to sit with her husband's casket. It's in a rear compartment of the plane, which until now had been a private family room. It was a place where Kennedy, his family, and friends could relax on long flights. Jackie summons Clint Hill.
2: When I found out that she wanted to see me, I just worked my way back through the aircraft and the presidential compartment to where she was. I walked in and she was seated. She stood up, she grabbed my hand. She said, oh, Mr. Hill, what's going to happen to you now? I mean, I was shocked to know that she was concerned about me. I said, Mrs. Kennedy, I'll be okay. Don't worry, I'll be okay.
1: Jackie is still with the casket when White House correspondent Sid Davis manages to board the plane. He had raced from Parkland Hospital in an unmarked police car, running red lights, weaving in and out of traffic. He's one of only three journalists allowed on Air Force One for what was about to take place.
0: Johnson assembled everybody in the room. There were... I counted 28 people.
1: Air Force One is still boiling hot. The engines haven't yet been turned on. Jackie keeps asking why the plane isn't moving. Please, let's leave, she begs. But Johnson is insistent that he take the oath of office before they leave for Washington.
0: Uh, I overheard Johnson uh, say to his secretary, Marie Famer, would you go back and ask Mrs. Kennedy if she would stand with us for the swearing-in?
1: Instead, Kenny O'Donnell volunteers. He finds Jackie back in the presidential bedroom. Do you want to go out there? he asks. Yes, I think I ought to, she responds. At least I owe that much to the country. But she asks General Godfrey McHugh to stay with the body. Don't leave him, she pleads. Shonton knows exactly how important it is to have Mrs. Kennedy present for the oath of office. The image of the First Lady standing next to him will reassure Americans of the continuity of government. It will say that the widow of the slain president supports him. Jackie understands this as well.
0: Imagine what the press would have printed if she hadn't been there uh, snubbing it. She's mad at Dallas. I could see all the stories being written.
1: Moments later, she walks into the cabin. The room falls silent. Her eyes are cast downward. She's the embodiment of grace and dignity. This is the essence of Jackie Kennedy. She has cast aside her personal suffering and a sacrifice for the benefit of the nation.
0: Mrs. Kennedy came up to the aisle, and LBJ, Vice President Johnson, saw her and went to the doorway and took her by both hands. He took both of her hands. He walked backwards and walked her into the room gently.
1: The cabin is crowded and hot. It's filled with congressmen, Reporters, Secret Service, aides to both Johnson and Kennedy, Davis remembers specifically how the young, hopeful Kennedy staff reacts.
0: When Mrs. Kennedy came down the hallway and entered the room, you could see the uh, depth of this injury and the, uh, how powerful that bullet was. And the sobbing started at this point. And as President Johnson waited to talk to the judge to deliver the oath, Uh, the sobbing grew louder. You could see the tears down their cheeks, streaking the mascara on their cheeks, on the women. Um, It was one of the most heartbreaking scenes you'd ever want to see. The feeling all these people had worked so hard to get him elected president, and now it was all gone.
1: There's a famous photo taken of this moment. Jackie stands beside Johnson... She's still in her pink Chanel jacket, but her face is dry. The trauma she endured that day doesn't show on her face. She knows that there is a higher calling, a sense of duty, that requires her to be in this moment and for her to retain her composure. It's remarkable, right, that this this woman who had been through such trauma, probably the worst trauma you could imagine, and she has, she's magnanimous enough to be thinking about the country and not her own suffering. It's a remarkable... It really is a remarkable statement about her and her character.
3: Well, it is. Her strength, her courage, her graciousness, because the way the photograph is taken, her hair blocks out most of her face, but you can just see enough of it to see the shock on her face. And some of the other... Uh, clips that are from that same ceremony where the president and Lady Bird turn to her and she even attempts a smile under this tremendous uh, horror that she is facing.
1: 2.40 p.m., just a little more than two hours after the first shots were fired, Judge Sarah Hughes, her voice shaking and her hands trembling, Administers the oath of office to President Lyndon B. Johnson. I will to
3: the best of my ability. will to the best of my ability. Preserve. Preserve. Protect. Protect.
0: Send. Okay. Constitution of the
2: United
0: States. Constitution of the United I States. There's
1: That tape recording of Johnson swearing in is intentionally left in Dallas by Johnson's aides before taking off. They wanted broadcasts to the world as soon as possible. Sid Davis has a distinct memory immediately following the oath.
0: And the one thing I pointed out in my pool report was that when he said he got the oath, and he said at the end of the oath, "So help me God," the Democratic congressman started to approach him to shake his hand, and he waved him off. He hadn't want any sign of celebration in that room at the time.
1: Jackie returns to the cramped rear compartment with her husband's casket. As she sits down for the flight, she says of the road ahead for her and her children, it's going to be so long and lonely. Air Force One finally lifts off at 2.46 p.m., just eight minutes after Lyndon Johnson takes the oath. It took 136 minutes from the time President Kennedy was shot, for Air Force One to get into the air with a new Commander-in-Chief on board. Politically, the nation still had a president. Continuity was maintained. At the same time, a family was destroyed. As Air Force One hurtles toward Washington, D.C., Jackie Kennedy is thinking about what comes next. How will she lay this giant to rest? And how will their family go on without him? Meanwhile, Lyndon Johnson is in the stateroom. He's wondering, will America accept him as their new commander-in-chief? And is the murder of Jack Kennedy just the beginning of a larger conspiracy? On the next episode of 24 Hours After, we'll go inside the mind of Lyndon Johnson. For many in the Kennedy camp, he was a villain in this story. But Johnson faced challenges unlike those of any previous president. He would have to steady the government, reassure the public, and catch an assassin all in the span of a few short hours. And the decisions he makes will set Johnson and the nation on a new path. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Sid Davis, Clint Hill, and Barbara Perry. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixing. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.